you're here today and you haven't done any practicing, you probably like you could just get up, go home, listen to one of the past sermons, and then do it and practice. And that would be a much better use of your Sunday morning time than sitting here listening uh, to me talk about new ideas uh, that you are, have no intention of practicing. So, okay, my not-so-nice way of saying you got to apply this stuff, you know? you got the whole scriptures all semester up front. You can know where to go, where to find it. If things seem particularly challenging to you, don't start there. Start somewhere else, uh, and uh, I think you'll be good to go. So we're going to do the sermon series today. It's called Hermeneutics, Herma Who? And uh, it's a follow-on from the sermon series, or the sermon last week, which was on exegesis. And uh, these are two very big words that, in my mind, are pretty arbitrary. All they really mean is that you study scripture in the background of it to figure out how it actually applies to you. And the Herma part is applying to you. You can't start there, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, because if you do, you'll skip all of the, the plain text, uh, but neither can you just stop with the studying of it. We're doing a class right now on the history of biblical interpretation. This morning was super boring. And, uh, but we have a lot of records of people simply taking their cultural ideas and just applying them to whatever they read without any historical context, not trying to learn the background. And anytime we do that, we're saying two things. One, I'm smarter than you. Two, my culture is better than you. And I'm going to add a third thing, okay? My culture is better than your culture. And, and three, uh, I've, the only thing that, you know, God can really teach me, okay, is through my own way of understanding, not through the, inter, uh, the original people who wrote what they wrote. And a lot of us just need to rediscover a biblical author's guide to Scripture and not, you know, go with all of the other resources that we've been given uh, that seem useful and convenient, but actually follow along with what the author of Scripture is saying. And most of us, it's, we're blind to it. Uh, blind to his purposes, blind to uh, the things that uh, he or she might be saying to us through the text. So anyway, hopefully that's what you've learned, uh, if nothing else. Herma who? So uh, today we're talking primarily about devotional reading. If last week in Exegesis we were talking about study, today I want to talk about devotional reading. What does it look like to read in a devotional way? And because that's really what we're sort of aimed at when we're trying to apply scriptures. We're trying to get something in the morning or in the night or whenever we do this once a week so that we can actually tie into the scripture and make it applicable to our lives. Too many of us treat the biblical text as a classic uh, that is sort of unreachable, that maybe we'll read every now and again, or if we have to, uh, but that we can't really access every day. We're going to talk a lot more about that next week, Um, but it certainly isn't that. In fact, what makes the scripture so powerful, it was written by common people to common people, and it affects everything in terms of adding meaning to our life, focusing us on the meaning of life, and explaining everything uh, that's important for us to know to have life and life to the full. So we want to figure out how to make that applicable to us. I've given you the scripture, Matthew 15, 1 through 20. I don't even have a Bible up here. It's back in my bag somewhere. So uh, actually, Chels, could you bring that to me, please? Thank you. It's red. has your name on it. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Has one note in the entire Bible, and it's a joke, so that's... uh, (laughs) My wife reads the scriptures, so. Um, I want to remind you of two things, really. The first one is, uh, Leslie and I have been listening to her preaching class. <laughs> Led by a guy named Daryl Johnson. 
out of Regent College. It's been really helpful to try to train us bad preachers on how to at least be kind of good. And, uh, you know, he, he mentioned something that's really stuck with me. I really like it a lot. And he, he says that every time you go to Scripture, no matter who you are, whether you're teaching, whether you're just reading it for your own, uh, you know, uh, uh, enjoyment or to be challenged or hear from God, there's sort of four things that ought to happen. And I'm not so sure if this happens in every single time you read. I think it's possible. I'm not so sure we have to memorize this category and like worry and check off that this happens every time. But the first one and probably the most important is that you have an encounter with God. Uh, In the word, reading it, you encounter the goodness, the character of God. Okay? And, uh, And that's the starting place. And as a result of that, you hear good news that's spoken into your life. And that news is public news. It's for everyone. It's not just for the few spiritual people who kind of like God or the really intelligent who can unlock the messages of Scripture. It's public good news for everyone. And Leslie talked about those two in her scriptural passage last week. I'm going to re-mention them this morning as we read through Matthew 15, uh, but uh, those are important. The two that I want to talk about today, which are the other two that Daryl Johnson talks about, is so you've encountered God, you've heard the public good news, And that challenges and changes your worldview, okay? And worldview is just a fancy word for saying kind of your structure of thinking, your perspective, your experience. And then the fourth thing is is that you obey in faith, that there's some action that you have to take now to obey in faith whatever this text is telling you to do. And so those are the two that I want to talk about today. So those four, just to mention them again, encounter God, the character of God, Hear the public good news, challenge, change your worldview, and have something to obey in faith. And I would say particularly that fourth one is, is one that throughout our day, uh, if we've done uh, our devotional reading well, we're considering, we're thinking about. It's at the sort of tip of our tongue. It's at the forefront of our mind. This is one of the things I love so much about my conversations with Willie, uh, that he always has something like that, some word that God has spoken to him that he ought to obey, and he's really ready to share that. I don't do that near as well, and that's one of the things that I want to get better at. Because if you devotional read and you do it correctly, God is speaking to you and giving you something to obey it. And that obedience isn't just so he can say, hey, look at my good little child there that obeys me whenever I speak. It's so that you can trust him more and more. Because the more you obey, the more you trust God that his word was actually right in the first place. Okay? And that trust takes an ongoing relationship. If you goes and grows and builds uh, on top of that. And so I want to talk about that a little bit today. I also wanted to remind you of something in two, sermon seri- or two sermons ago, I mentioned kind of a way that I developed uh, to read through the scripture devotionally, and this may be helpful for you, and it might not. I loved it. It was the most consistent I've ever been in actually reading devotionally, and I just want to mention it one more time because I'll forget it. It won't fit in my sermon anywhere else, and that's that I took the Lord's Prayer and broke that up into basically four sections, Okay, and then read a genre of scripture in each one. So on Monday, I'd read a psalm, and the whole idea was praying through hallowed be your name. The focus was on God's character, you know, who he is, how I can kind of celebrate that, right? The second one uh, was your kingdom come on earth as it, or your kingdom come will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I read a gospel, and the whole point was to try to figure out, okay, how do I speak into my life, into my city, my area, Uh, inviting God's kingdom to come work in my life and where I'm at, and then praying through that. 
The third one was an epistle, and that's to give us today our daily bread. I wanted to figure out, okay, so how ought I live as a Christian? You know, what, what, what is sort of, uh, what do I need to know today, either about my belief system, about God, whatever, from one of the writers of the New Testament? And then the last one, forgive us our sins, you know, protect us from the evil one. I usually would read a prophet, Old Testament prophet, because, man, they talk a lot about people's needing to be delivered. Or the Torah in Deuteronomy, somewhere where God is delivering his people, certainly the Exodus, something like that. And that just helped me. It kept things fresh. It kept me reading devotionally. I would just read chunks at a time, you know, uh, try to read them in their context, and then praying through that uh, you know, four times a week. And so certainly want to encourage you to do that if that's helpful for you. If not, there's a variety of, of methods you could talk to people in our church who do devotional stuff and I uh, think get a lot out of that. All right, Matthew 15, 1 through 20. Here we go. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father, father and mother, and anyone who curses his father and mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. So you get the gist here. They're coming to him in the gall of asking, why don't you follow the elders' tradition? This came out of the Levitical laws, but that sort of extra, you know, interpretation that we talked about, uh, I think two weeks ago, the Talmud, uh, you know, so there was all these traditions, all these laws. He says, yeah, let me put it back on you. You decide to reject the very commands of God for the sake of your tradition, okay? So he's asking them, well, you're asking me why I do this. Let me ask you why you do this, which is obviously uh, much worse. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. So teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. And then in verse 12, which I honestly don't have any idea what verse 12 means. How could they, I don't, how could they in seriousness, without having missed the entire scene, really ask this question? I don't know. I are really, this is a, in my exegesis of this passage, I'm very confused at verse 12. Because the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? What, what, that doesn't make any sense to me in context. None. It's one of those passages that seems like makes the apostles seem like absolute morons. So there's something I'm missing because that's not the case. So I still don't know. I've wrestled with this all week trying to kind of, but thankfully I'm doing hermeneutic, uh, and not exegesis. So I don't even have to answer that question. So that's good. Devotional reading. I can skip those difficult parts. Um, He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them alone. They're blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Uh, That sounds rude, but he he really is not insulting them. It's strange, but it's really better translated. Do you still not understand? Uh, More like kind of like a let's go, you know, not like, hey, you're an idiot. Um, (laughs) Jesus asked, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Now, you could do a lot with that passage in terms of exegesis. Certainly, you could go find the other examples of uncleanliness. You could go to Isaiah and uh, read through the passage there. We're not doing that today. Um, I would tell you that in the way of kind of reminding you of what uh, Leslie talked about last time, you know, if I'm reading through this passage and I'm trying to figure out how would I encounter God in this, the first and most important character aspect of God is God is into serious change so people can thrive. He's not into touching people up on the outside. Cosmetics, you know, he's into serious heart change, dealing with problems at their root, which is always more difficult than dealing with the outward expression of those problems. And like a good psychologist or a counselor, God wants to deal with these things at the heart because he wants us to thrive, okay? And that's really good news, that, that he is a, a God that cares about us at our innermost parts, that he's not just get in line, you know, uh, play whatever role you need to play, obey me for the sake of obedience. He really, really, really wants us to fix these maladies that, that are deep, deep, uh, deeply entwined within us. That's good news. So then we got to move on to the challenge and the change of worldview. Certainly one of the most important questions I think you can ask from this is what moral rules do I abide by that trump scripture? What things have I defined as morally wrong or morally right that simply come from my culture, my tradition, my uh, understanding, my personality, whatever it is? What, what are they? And that's a pretty vague question. It takes a long time for us to figure that kind of stuff out. But if we're honest, a lot of us in our freedoms have decided a lot of things are morally right and morally wrong without really being rooted in uh, scripture and understanding what God wants of us. We've made judgment calls. And those judgment calls are often rules that set us up for success and others for failure. But thank God that's not who our God is. Because morality is ultimately about us deciding rules so that we can be successful in carrying out those rules. Why do you think the Pharisees had so many rules of the elders and traditions? So they could be set up for success. So they could walk from place to place washing their hands and people look at them like, wow, they're really spiritual. I work in an industry that's unclean. I couldn't possibly wash my hands as much as they do. But that's ultimately what happens when we create our own moral systems as we set ourselves up, our own values, whether that's experience, whatever it is, so as for us to be successful. That's really the whole idea of creating morality. <clears throat> the authority is always with our own success and ability to accomplish those things. In the morning class, uh, I read a quote which I just really love. I think it's great. We'll talk more about this in allegory uh, next week, but it just says allegory is not so much about the meaning or lack of meaning. Allegory, by the way, is the idea that I read hidden messages in Scripture that the average person couldn't possibly pick up. And this is a very common practice in Greek philosophy. It was a very common practice in uh, the early church fathers. It had some merits for sure. But at times, it would lead common people to think that they didn't have the keys or didn't have the ability to understand scriptures themselves. 
in some ways, we have a new problem, and that's the historical critical methods where you, we think you have to be incredibly smart and learned to be able to understand Scripture, which is just as bad in my mind as allegorizing the Bible. But he says it's not so much about meaning or lack of meaning in text as it is a way of using text and their meanings to situate oneself and one's community with respect to society and culture. What he's saying, and this is a guy named David Dawson writing in an incredibly boring but significant book called Allegorical Readers, that allegory is simply taking the text and adding meaning that makes my society and my culture significant. In fact, it's a rejection often, certainly was in Greek thinking, of this sort of backwoods, apostles, you know, Jewish way of thinking. And it's a way of elevating my own sort of belief system, my own value system. And we do this. We do it no matter what. I mean, we do it with being liberal or being conservative or, you know, being rich or being white or being black or whatever. We've got our moral system that we come up with and apply that on others so as to feel good about being good. We just do it. This is just a natural part of who we are. And Jesus comes in the mix of that, cuts through everything, and says it's not about these outward things that go in. And this is a pretty racy scripture, by the way. And I don't want to try to go too far into it, but let's be really clear about something, not to be crass. And two of the five examples he gives in the end of this are sexual sins. We'll talk about that in a moment. I'll let you make the connections. I think that's often not recognized in this passage at all because it might make us a little uncomfortable. But we have our own moral systems that we come up with and largely ignore whether or not those things are based in any kind of biblical uh, principles or not. We do it with alcohol here in our church on both sides. Some just can't fathom the idea of Christians drinking. The appearance of it is no good. Shouldn't, shouldn't happen. Never should do that. Nor can some others of us fathom the idea that someone ought to tell them not to drink. We're free. We do what we want. That's legalism. And so here you have both sides of an issue completely opposite ends, but are both moral systems. How can you possibly live in a world like that? One of the most important recognitions, uh, or, or I don't know how to say that actually, um, that the humanist enlightenment era reformers made was church and state just simply don't go together because you get a whole bunch of religious people making moral laws and they're going to be on the opposite fence of each other and try to criminalize everybody else. And so went the Catholic-Protestant wars of the two or three hundred year period. But we do this, and we do this with all kinds of stuff. And so rather than with alcohol, you know, seeing, hey, wait a second, maybe the underlying issue here is I don't have much love for my neighbor. Whether that's I don't have enough love for him not to drink because he may or may not have an alcohol problem, or I don't have enough love for him not to judge him because he chooses to do something freely and in good conscience that I don't approve of. Deeper issues. The ones that Jesus wants to get at. Humility. The idea that maybe my preference here, my opinion, shouldn't be the one that rules other people's lives. That I should submit myself to my own standards. How crazy is that? 
faith. That, you know, whether I'm drinking because I simply don't have enough faith that God's going to provide, you know, a, a way out in some of these anxious or anxiety problems or issues, or faith that with this person's drinking problem, or if they don't have a drinking problem, God is still going to work apart from me having to control their decision-making in their lives. There's just a lot of these issues kind of deeply and beneath the surface that Jesus is trying to get at here. And he says that the Pharisees aren't even remotely interested in getting to those deeper issues because what happens at the deeper issues, guys, is we find unity and humility. Because we recognize that the deeper issues, we're all messing up on the important stuff. All of us. But on our higher moral systems and structures and ways of thinking, I'm doing real good compared to you. But at the real level, the most important level, we are all on the same playing field. And that is at the bottom, humble before God. And the most important matters of morality. And that's incredibly important and incredibly humbling. So that's going to challenge and change our worldview on these moral issues. Number two, we've got to obey in faith. One of the most important testimonies to God's goodness in Scripture is he's about affirmative action. Now, I'm not talking about legal affirmative action with race and you know gender and all that stuff. I'm talking about a God that unlike Confucius, who said, don't do unto others as you wouldn't have them do unto you, far before Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, isn't just about a bunch of negative rules and list of things you ought not do. In Christ, for every don't, there is a do. And the do is the most important part of it. The don't is child's play stuff. Yeah. It's the basic line of morality. It's the do stuff that only God can actually do in us through his spirit. And that's what he's saying here in the scripture. It's that stuff at the very heart level, the things that we ought to change about who we are. I was thinking about this applied to speed limits the other day. <laughs> if instead of a minimum don't, don't go over this speed, can you imagine signs that say like, respect other drivers. <laughs> go at the pace you think most wise. <laughs> we would all be dead. Um, <laughs> especially anybody who drives around me, okay? It just doesn't work because that's not who we are in our human condition. But it's absolutely how the kingdom of God works. It's voluntarily doing what's good for everyone and being empowered by the Spirit to do that. And what religious groups so often get chided for is they live more down to these moral systems that they've created that get further and further as time goes away from anything that was supposed to be uh, uh, reflecting God's character. And that's super unfortunate. And we are no more immune to it as a church and as a nation and as a religious group than any of the others. Our one and only hope is to allow God to get it to the heart of things. Um, I, you know, millennials, I, it's kind of a mixed review here because in some ways millennials are all about affirmative action, doing things. Again, not the race, gender stuff getting out, you know, doing things, actually being for social justice causes. But at the same time, millennials also sort of reject all institutional rules, it seems like. There's no real sense of we should be doing this because they've said it, 
if I like it, I'll do it. If I don't, I won't. If it's practical for me, I'll do it. If I don't. It kind of reminds me of the, uh, the parable in Matthew 12 of the guy who gets rid of the seven or gets rid of the one demon, but then doesn't really replace it with anything. So like seven come back and he's worse off than before. Unfortunately, our millennial ethic or morality has been to pretty much just criticize every set of moral and ethic beliefs, but then not to really replace it with one of our own. And, uh, and that's gotten, to us, gotten us into some incredibly big issues. In my mind, mostly with sex. Because as we diminish the importance of not having sex until you're married, uh, we just somehow don't connect that to the problems we have in our society with broken families. We're just immune to it. And I'm not trying to guilt anybody here. I'm just simply saying... we. We often, most millennials I talk to have no moral justification or reason why they ought not to have sex before they're married. And guys, a Christian that doesn't know why not to do that, number one is going to be one who does, and number two is going to have absolutely no ability to witness to God's character uh, by talking to other people about it. God doesn't want me to. Really? Why? Because it seems great. Seems like everybody else is. I didn't die the last time I messed up, you know? So there's a problem with all of that, and it gets us into a lot of issues. To me, the biggest problem with our attitudes about sex are about deep misunderstandings of who we are. The biggest one is misunderstanding personhood. We treat sex as something that basically we use each other to feel good, and then no commitment. We just don't worry about it. We move on to the next person or the next a, a moment or the next behavior. More and more young people today are using sex to simply get close to somebody. It's crazy. That lack of real true intimacy is like playing a video game or looking at pornography. It is not real life, and it certainly does not respect people's personhood as bigger than objects, okay? As more important than just something to use and then to move on to, no matter what the other person thinks about it or whether they agree. We're using each other. So there are all kinds of deeper issues there uh, that we've got to get at. And I think one of the real cool things about this text in terms of its obedience and faith is it asks us, you know, when you think about morality, when you think about what's good, how much of what you think day to day and the decisions you make have any sort of biblical source or God's character at the middle and how many of them are just norms of your society or of your group or social group that you've just kind of decided to do because you don't want to risk the consequences of it or you don't want to have to think about it? And I think if we can get there, uh, not only do we get more unified over a lot of other issues, but we start to address some of the more important issues in our own hearts and the hearts of people around us. Plus, the nice real side benefit of this is it allows us to interact a whole lot more with people in our culture without putting our nose up at them for, you know, doing a whole bunch of sort of surface-level things that we don't really like very much. So challenge the worldview, obey in faith. What moral rules do you have that trump Scripture? And behind every don't, have you really discovered the do, uh, what we're affirmatively supposed to be doing in Christ? Or is it just the rules? I do not agree with someone who will remain nameless, and I want to say this on record so that I can get in trouble, who presents Christianity often as a book of rules. 
He's come out and said that multiple times, and I disagree with him. Maybe he's looking at it from a very different perspective. None of you, I don't think, know what I'm talking about, so only the few who've heard some of these sermons, that Christianity is really about rules. It's not about rules. I'm sorry. It's just not. It's about relationship, and any rule is simply an ability to move forward in a relationship, just like a parent has for their kids. And that's really, really important, and I think we have to pick that up uh, from, uh, from this text. I have no idea what time it is, but I think maybe I did a decent job. My gosh, this is what happens. When I don't have my clock, I preach short sermons. (laughs) We have uh, uh, discovered the secret of my uh, sermonizing. Don't have a clock. That's a very strange, strange thing. Um, Okay, so uh, for next week, oh, I don't even have next week. I'm done with this. Wow, no more pages. How exciting. Um, you just have to look online because I don't remember. I think we're doing allegory in the, uh, the church fathers. So I'm going to say a prayer for us and we'll break into communion and uh, we'll continue coming back in. Uh, we'll sing. Lord God, thank you for saving us from the worst parts of who we are. You know us and you know us deeply. You're not at all um, confused or tricked by our outward signs of morality, our pathetic human attempts at following human rules and human traditions to make ourselves feel good. But with that understanding comes huge responsibility. We know that you working in us means that every door is opened into the secret parts of our heart and our minds and places that we are terrified ourselves of going you have grace for us. And more than just grace, you have uh, a plan and a future, and you give us the ability to overcome things that we never thought possible, to deal with consequences we thought would bury us. Lord, your mercy is so deep, and it runs uh, just like a river through our souls and our hearts and our minds, uh, cleansing away the junk and, uh, and all of the things that we've stored up there. Lord, please, as we uh, take this communion, uh, help us just to remember the forgiveness that you've already given us. To remember that in uh, a recognition of our faults and failures, as Paul would say, the worst of sinners, that we have amazing grace that comes from you. That when we were at our worst, you still chose to die for us. And uh, Lord, give us just an ounce of that so that we can treat other people uh, with respect and uh, and able to keep from quick snap judgments, but to really see through to the heart. We love you, and we just honor you deeply now, God, as we uh, thank you for your son's sacrifice for us. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.